Let's continue our time in worship uh, as we read together uh, this morning's passage. This morning we'll be reading in the book of Psalms. We'll be reading Psalm chapter 145. Psalm chapter 145, excuse me, 145, and we'll be reading the whole chapter, starting at verse 1. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of your glorious splendor of of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion in all he has made. All you have made will will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all he promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Lord, mindful of our weakness this morning, we come before you and ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we are so much in need of hearing from you, Lord. Remind us once again of your greatness and your nearness, Lord. Lord, we desire to hear from you, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present, speak to our hearts. Exalt our Saviour, we pray, Lord. Bring forth the truth from your word, Lord, that you would encourage your people And spur us on to love and faith and service toward you, Lord. For your praise and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm number 145. We'll be going through most of the verses of the psalm. The Psalms has been... It's actually got uh, the wrong reputation of being the longest book in the Bible. It's not the longest book in the Bible. But it's a book which has been deemed to be the hymn book of the Old Testament. 
written by a number of authors, uh, primarily David, but not solely David. And it's a book that's near and dear to many Christians. If you've been a Christian for a while, the book of Psalms is usually part of a regular, healthy Christian biblical diet. I can't think of many days that have gone by when I haven't turned to the Psalms, to some part of the Psalms. When I'm preparing worship, I'm usually in the Psalms, flicking through the Psalms, remembering bits of them, rereading, finding things which I've never seen before. It spans a huge breadth of human experience, and, whilst it, and it's typically addressed to God. There's praise, worship, sometimes lament, confessions, prophecy, calls for God's justice and judgment. There's gladness, there's anticipation, calling on God, calling on God for help. The view of God is very clear. God is the only God. God is the God of creation. God is the God who deals with his people according to grace. And we get glimpses of God being praised both in history and in eternity. This book of Psalms is interesting because often we think of the Psalms as having kind of individually no context. There's a few, few Psalms where at the beginning it will say, it will give a little bit of history as to when this Psalm was, was written. But most of them, they're kind of self-contained units. But within the book of Psalms, there's actually five separate books which have been identified and divided each consisting of maybe 10, 20, 30 psalms. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning is from the fifth book of the psalms, a book of the psalms which has been referred to by some as the Hallelujah book of the, of the psalms. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning is just before the Hallelujah psalms, which are Psalm 146 up to 150. If you're a worship leader... Those psalms are like you know, prime material for leading worship, Psalm 146, even Psalm 145 onwards. Now, I'm not sure, but it's possible that I may be giving you a teaser trailer because I've heard, although I may be mistaken, that we will be spending some time in the book of psalms over the coming weeks and perhaps months. So hopefully this will whet your appetite and give you some like a, a sense of anticipation of what is to come. Now, in terms of context, as we come to this fifth book of Psalms, there is one verse, which is the verse just preceding the start of the fifth book of Psalms, and that's in Psalm 106, verse 48. And some commentators believe that this is the verse through which we should understand the context of the rest of the book of Psalms. And the verse is, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all people say, Amen, praise the Lord. The context and the trajectory and the, the heart attitude that this section, this book of Psalms is supposed to bring is a great stirring of a hallelujah in our hearts. A blessed be the Lord, praise be him from everlasting to everlasting. Let all people say, Amen, let it be so, praise the Lord. Now, the Psalm 145 has a special place in my heart. I was eight or nine years old, and I used to stand in the church. It was a small, smaller English charismatic church a long time ago. And they would sing a song, I will exalt you, my God and my King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will speak of your mighty acts. 
They will tell of the glorious splendors of your majesty. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. It was a very groovy song, actually. I've actually hoped one day I'll be able to teach it at at church. Uh, I love that song. It's been a song. And that song got lodged into my mind, seven, eight, nine years old. And then we never sang it again. The song was actually composed by someone in that church, someone you've never heard of. And then, 13, 14 years later, I was, uh, we just recently moved to Canada and God brought this song back to my memory. And it's encouraged me many times. And it's been a source of, of inspiration and has helped me worship God so many times. What a testimony to how God can just take his word, lodge it in your mind, and then bring it back later, years and years later. Another song we were just singing this morning, Great is the Lord and Most Worthy of Praise. And Lord, we want to thank you for the works you've done in our lives. It was quite emotional singing this song because the last time I sang that was about, at least that I remember, it was many, many years ago back in the church in England. I think we've sung it in this church a couple of times since then. But when I remember, this is a song that reminds me of Energy, the youth church where I, where I grew up, where God formed me a lot. Just to think how much God has brought us through over this time. Now, as we start to look at the passage, there's one other little note that I would like to say as we start Psalm 145. It's, a, it's what's called an acrostic poem. So what that means is, is that each verse in the, in, the, in the chapter is started with a different letter of the alphabet. So there's 22 letters in the alphabet. There's 21 verses, but there's one verse which probably has two bits, and um, there's a little bit of intricacy around that. But poetry in, in, in the Hebrew times was a little bit different to nowadays. Nowadays we think of you know, uh, rhyming last words. Here, the thing, uh, a lot of the poetry is based around these kind of phrases which are built up of two individual clauses. And you'll see that a lot of the verses in this psalm are essentially like two parts. And really the focus of this passage is exalting God's greatness. Another last note of context as we start is that this is the last, noted to be the last psalm of David. I'm going to assume from that, I don't know for sure, and I didn't find any notes in the commentary, that this is chronologically the last last of David. It may not be, just because it was the last in the chapter. But here we see David ending on a high note. Let's start, let's get into our passage. Verse number one. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. I will exalt, I will elevate, I will lift high your name, my God and my King. Now remember who wrote this passage. It was David, and he was likely the greatest human on earth at the time. The greatest king of the greatest kingdom at the time, with cutting-edge military might and technology and strength. He was just before, like just at the dawn of the golden age of Israel, as Solomon would ascend to the throne and all the wealth would, would accumulate and the temple of the Lord would be built. David was a great warrior having subdued the nations around him. And yet in this last psalm of his, he clearly acknowledges who is the true sovereign, the God, the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who brought Israel out of the land of slavery We've been hearing week after week how God had been working through the exodus and bringing his people out of slavery. And here we see, brought into the land, under God's king, under God's rule, at the pinnacle it seems. And yet at this pinnacle point, he raises his praise to God and God alone. 
all seems almost to have been fulfilled. There's a king on the throne who serves the Lord. And those of you who have looked through the history of Israel know how important it is that the king serve the Lord, that the people would follow. The land promise seems to have been fulfilled. They've been made a mighty nation. They are released from slavery. The presence of the Lord is in Jerusalem. The temple hasn't come yet. And here at this pinnacle point, it's not a point where he looks and sees how great his kingdom is of his own doing, as Nebuchadnezzar looked at his kingdom and said it was of his own doing. He says, you are my God and my king. You are my king. The greatest king bows before God the king. Verse number two, every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Forever and every day. And he's not talking about a one day eventuality. One day I will praise you. One day I will forever praise you. If you look through the Psalms, 76 I think is the count. Half of, more than half of the book of Psalms is attributed to David. You can see that this was fully a part of his life. And as disastrous as part of his life was. Praise and worship was a huge part. I can just imagine him having to have put the work in to write this psalm. He had to carefully construct the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and try to figure out how he was going to arrange things. This isn't a mishmash of just ideas. Okay, what does A start with? I'll I'll write a, a verse about God A and then B and C. No, it's very carefully crafted. There's thought and time that has gone into this. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Extol, it's not a word that we use nowadays. But the sense is, I will praise you enthusiastically. You get a sense of the heart involvement. How his heart was invested in praising the Lord. He goes on, verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Great and worthy. Most worthy. He talks about the magnitude of his greatness that no one can fathom. Now just before I get to the the, the idea of God's greatness and the fact that we cannot fathom its depth, let us think also on Psalm 57, which forms the basis of a song that we sing at this church. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to you among the people. For your steadfast love is great, it is great to the heavens, and thy faithfulness to the clouds. Now there was a place in the Psalms where God's greatness was was, uh, described in terms of height. Now we have a passage here where God's greatness is described in terms of depth. In some some, uh, some, uh, translations, the concept is of His greatness is unsearchable. It's so immense, we cannot come to the edges of it. By the way, the ocean depth swamps the height of the mountains. The ocean is so deep, it is about as deep as how high aircraft fly above the earth. How great and deep is God's love, God's greatness. And I don't know if you've seen some of these like um, Planet Earth documentaries. There's a sense of foreboding when you start to see, you see the, 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 the planetary shelf. And when it goes off that edge and you see into the depth and you don't know where the bottom is, it's unnerving, isn't it? I don't know, even in Finding Nemo, I remember when they come to the edge of the... <laughs> it's amazing, you can have a sense of God's greatness even when watching Pixar. 
But, you know, you come, they're, they're on the edge of the, the coral reef, and then, you know, the, the father tells Nemo not to go you know, near the edge, and then they have a look, and it just, just goes down, doesn't it? It goes down. His greatness, you can't find the bottom of it. Incredible, isn't it? And we think, we who've been Christians 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we know everything there is to know about God. We're scratching the surface, guys. Now, I'm going to dwell on this verse for a little while. So don't get worried when you see, okay, the the chapter's got 21 verses. It's at verse 3, and it's at verse 3 for the next 10 minutes. Don't worry. God's greatness is shown in his creation. I want you to grasp the fact that God brought the world into being simply by speaking. Isn't this the type of power that we are trying to get nowadays? Pull out your smartphone. I want you to call Reg, please. You know, and it will do that. You know, Email my mom. I'm going to be late. You know, Turn the temperature down at home. I want it 34 degrees. On a, you know. This is the type of power we want. We want to speak and we want the word to happen. Isn't this the power that we see in societies? The more elevated you get in society, it is simply by saying the word that your will gets done, isn't it? Your boss tells you to do something. It better get done. And his boss's boss says something, and it better, better sure be done, you know. When the prime minister says something, it's supposed to happen, isn't it? And we think of the presidents and the prime ministers that are around the world, some of them wielding incredible power simply by the power of their word. It's a little bit worrying when you think about whose whose hands this power is in nowadays. But powers of construction, of distributing wealth, of destruction... You think of the, the U.S. You know, having you know, a huge arsenal of thermonuclear weapons, and the Russians too. I mean, it's pretty scary when you think about it. And yet, this is just a small echo of what God's power is like. He simply speaks, and worlds are created. I want you to grasp the fact that not only did he, this, this boggle my mind. I've got a more of a scientific mind, so forgive me. It's not only that he spoke the worlds into being, he created in an instant the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of biology, all created at the, just at his word. The immensity of how wonderful he is. When I was thinking about how great God is, I thought I would, talk, I would bring you back to God's own words when he was trying to recenter Job on how great he was. Who laid out the foundations of the earth? Who marked out its dimensions? Who measured the measuring line across it? Who laid the cornerstone of the world? Who made the clouds and pushed back the oceans and set their limits? Who walked in the stream of the sea and walked in the depths of the oceans? Who knows where the storehouses of snow are? Who controls the thunder and the lightning? Who commands the morning? Who set and guides the constellations in space? Another verse which comes to mind of the greatness of our God is a, is a verse in verse 46. In Psalm 46, sorry. It says, the Lord lifts his voice and the earth melts. It's a terrifying amount of power our Lord has. And whilst we see God on the what's called the macro scale, on the huge dimensional scale of the universe, and when we think about the greatness of our planet and greatness of the solar system, also God is there. He's 
Amazing greatness, unfathomable greatness. Is it not seen in that which is tiny and micro? See Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you knit my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. As many of you may may know, my wife and I were expecting our fourth child. And it's been amazing. There's a website called babycenter.com. And you can see the, you can log into it and you can basically click on what week you are in your pregnancy. And it will tell you how big the baby is and what new features there are of the baby. And it's incredible. Like, I don't know what we, I I could be wrong on this, okay, but (laughs) don't quote me, but I don't know, week eight, you know, there's fully formed limbs. Week 12, you know, there's tiny fingernails, tiny eyelashes, a heartbeat. And each time you hear this, you know, it's the size of a grape, it's the size of a plum, it's the size of an avocado. It's incredible. Our God has created us at the enormous scale and at the minute scale. Speaking of both immense power and such intricate power, his greatness is unfathomable. Now talking about that, we can move on to another aspect. And obviously I'm not going to exhaust God's greatness when the Bible already says that his greatness is unfathomable. I want to give a few placeholders. His greatness in terms of knowledge. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the the secret place. Continuing in Psalm uh, 139. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me are written in your book. Before one of them came to be, when I awake, I am still with you. God knows everything that He knows everything about you. He knows where you're going to be. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. I don't know if you're finding this. Maybe, uh, maybe not so. But I found at work I'm not as sharp as I used to be. There are many times when I've been at work and I thought, you know, if I was doing my job when I was 17, I'd be much better. I was way smarter then. Now I'm just like slowing down. You know, I have to think about things a lot longer. I'm just worried about what it's going to be in 10 years' time. just hope my boss doesn't listen to this sermon. But <laughs> My understanding has limits and I'm starting to see it, you know. When I see how quickly my children learn and how long it takes me to learn things. See how quick my kids learn French and I'm still struggling after 11 years. But his understanding has no limits. Psalm 139 verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know where I sit and where I rise, where I lie down. You know my words before they are on my tongue. This one blew my mind. Because I don't really know my words before they're on my tongue. I'm kind of like in this weird kind of ad-libbing now. You know, I've got notes, but I don't exactly know the words before they come out of my mouth. God knows that before it's even before you've even conceived what you're going to say. Incredible. How precious are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. How wonderful is our Lord? I was just thinking this week when uh, there, were, there was all this news about the Juno probe going over Jupiter's spot. Now, some of the, the greatest scientific minds, physicist minds in the world are you know, involved in this program, this NASA program. 
yet they're just discovering stuff that God already knows. You think, God's like, oh, really? That's what it's like on Jupiter? Oh, I didn't know that, you know. And they're just scratching the surface, you know. How amazing our God is in terms of knowledge. He's also great in terms of majesty. We think of Isaiah chapter 6. And it talks about Isaiah being in the throne room of God. And it said the train of his robe filled the temple. Now in ancient times, a, um, a king or a monarch or a sovereign, their measure of greatness was displayed publicly by the length of their robes. I, I don't know if you've, maybe some of you uh, remember, maybe more recently or in the past, Princess Diana getting uh, married or Prince Kate, um, or, um, Kate uh, the Duchess, uh, getting married, and the length of their, of their wedding gowns, you know, displaying how, how regal they were and how much royalty they had. And yet when we talk about our God, it talks about the train of his robe filled the temple. What majesty our Lord has. Above whose throne there ever flies seraphim, shielding their feet and their eyes and calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Our God is great in majesty. Glimpse also greatness of our God in glimpses of our Savior. In the greatness of our Savior. One thought which I've had a hard time expressing but that struck me so strongly this Christmas was the fact that we know that through Colossians the world was created through Christ. Christ created the star that signaled his birth. This thought just echoed in my mind consistently as we were going through Christmas this year. And for those, I don't know if any of you have done like a level, like a astrophysics calculations or you know, planetary perturbations and stuff like that. God calculated the trajectory of that star from the creation of the world so it would be exactly at the right place. Incredible. I can't even, I can't even understand this type of computation. Incredible. As you can see, I have a scientific mind. Maybe. <laughs> Glimpses of our Savior. We also see greatness in our Savior when the voice thundered from heaven audibly. This is my Son who I'm, in whom I am well pleased, both at his baptism and at his transfiguration. Think of his miracles that speak to the greatness of our God. Water into wine, walking on water, calming the storm, feeding thousands twice. Healing the sick, the lame, the blind, raising the dead. What greatness. Or perceive perhaps maybe slightly more by faith the greatness of our Savior in his passion. The greatness to withstand that word, to call forth the legions of angels to rescue him. See the greatness of our Savior in his humility, his resolution, setting himself towards Jerusalem. See the greatness in the prayer that says, not my will, but thine be done. The love exemplified, the compassion personified, the graciousness incarnate. See our merciful high priest displaying the multifold ex excellencies of, of the Godhead, even on the cross, triumphing over the powers and principalities and putting them to shame in his cross. His grace, his holiness, his power, his might to save. Don't we sing that? He is mighty to save. My God is mighty to save. See the greatness of our Savior in exhausting God's wrath in time. 
Furthermore, talking about the greatness of our God that we see in our Savior, this again we have to perceive by faith, but we get told in Romans that there is a proclamation by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God because of his resurrection from the dead. See also the greatness of our God, not only in creation at the grand scale and the smaller scale, God's greatness in knowledge, God's greatness in the person of our Savior. See, finally, glimpses of God's greatness in Revelation. Raise your eyes to see glimpses in the pages of Scripture of God's glory, where we enter the throne room and we're given a special glimpse of the greatest crowd that has ever existed. After I looked... There was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We praise God who is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the one who was and is and is to come. Now this one is again a place where I want to pause because for us as humans, And beings created in the likeness of God. For some reason it's easy for us to comprehend God existing forever in the future. Because we will exist forever in the future. But I'll tell you something. Try to comprehend that God has no beginning. Oh, that's difficult. That's hard to understand. It's hard to even comprehend how can there be such a great being. That God hasn't attained his greatness. God has ever had his greatness. Always from all time. I don't even have the words to express it, isn't it? God whose being is completely non-contingent on anyone else. We, even though we are eternal beings, we are contingent on God to keep our being. Yet God is someone who is completely non-contingent. He doesn't require someone else to keep his existence alive. He dwells in unapproachable light. What a great God we serve. How immeasurable is his greatness? And here I've given just my choice of categories of God's greatness. Now this was the verse I was going to take some more time on, and rightly so. Now let's move a little bit faster. Verse 4, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. His greatness, which goes from generation to generation. This is a greatness that man cannot claim. There is not a single man that can push his greatness beyond the span of his lifetime. They try through trust funds and through people's legacies and through a great family name, but it's not the individual themselves that keeps greatness beyond the span of their lifetime. It is only our God who has greatness that can span lives and tens of lives and generations and generations. We see our God who is able to make covenants and fulfill them generations later. The same God that we've been hearing about in our Exodus study is the God that we serve today. All that faithfulness to his promise to hear the people and save them from, their, uh, from the people that were enslaving them. 
That's our same God and He can He fulfills His purposes over the span of generations which no one man can claim. We are here because of the truth of this verse. Because of God's faithfulness from generation to generation to generation. It was amazing to me as I was preparing this to start to realize I'm reading words as I'm preparing for this sermon from people. I was reading the commentary of John Calvin 500 years ago, hearing him exalt God and it's encouraging me here today. I was reading a book recently by John Stott who died uh, six, seven years ago in his 90s. From one generation, knowledge and and the wonder of God being passed on to the next generation. I've read, we've read sermons, we've heard sermons, people from other generations. Look in your hymn book. There's actually one hymn in the hymn book that dates back to the 4th century. Not bad for longevity, huh? 16, 1700 years. Still in the church hymnal. Imagine, the, the tune for that song was written 900 years after the song was written. Amazing. But one generation commending the works of the Lord to another. We think of parents passing on to their children, grandparents passing on to their children the greatness of God. Use your godly imagination for a moment just to imagine how literally the words of Christ have gone to other people, that has gone to other people, that have told their children, that have told and shared their faith and come down and down and down 2,000 years later and you're sitting here. Incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? Our God who can work from generation to generation. Remember that, because it's easy to lose sight of that when you teach children in Sunday school, when you're involved in a mission at church, when you're funding or helping with missions work. Our God uses means and he works from generation to generation. Verse number five, they, they will speak or they speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. The idea here is not just speaking and talking, but it's literally, and this was from John Calvin's uh, commentary, gushing forth an overflowing utterance of the glorious splendor of his majesty. There's words of of a hymn that I um, like quite a lot. It says, How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thy endless wisdom, boundless power, and awesome purity. Where has it been a place where we have meditated on God's wonderful work? And I was thinking meditation is a little bit of a difficult word, but I was trying to think, what is a common denominator for all of us that we can relate to where we have meditated on the wonderful work of God? And I was thinking, each month when we take communion, isn't this a place where we as a church body, we join together and meditate on the wonderful works of God? He resolves himself, I will meditate on your wonderful works. Even this week as I was spending time studying this passage and being and being exposed to the greatness of God, I was having a hard time at work and feeling a bit despondent about things. And my wife encouraged me and it just made me realize how easy it is to hold the truth about God's greatness in your mind and have it completely not affect your life. And as I started to realize God's greatness, it gave me strength to deal with the challenges of the week. Meditate on his wonderful works. 
Verse number six. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. This generation that speaks from one generation, they will speak of the power of his awesome deeds from generation to generation. Jesus, my great, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone and now it speaks before the throne. 300 years ago, speaking of the power of his awesome deeds that we use as part of our worship from time to time. Amazing. They, the people that speak from one generation to one generation, propagating the greatness of God, they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The generation speaking from one generation to the next. His glory is what we glory in. His victory is our joy. His abundant goodness is what rouses our hearts. Give an example of celebrating his goodness. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine? True and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call him mine. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Celebrating his abundant goodness. What a great example. They will joyfully sing of his righteousness. And I was just thinking as I was studying this passage. It is because of his abundant goodness, that we are able to celebrate and joyfully sing about his righteousness. His righteousness is not something that we could joyfully sing about if our sins were not dealt with. It's because of his lavish, abundant goodness that we can sing joyfully. We celebrate his righteousness, don't we? Now as we get to the end of this little little, little section, which is talking more about God's greatness... Hear the breath of the language that's used. I will exalt you, I will praise you, I will extol you, I will speak, I will gush forth, I will meditate, I will tell, I will proclaim, I will celebrate, I will joyfully sing, I will bless you in some translations. Hear the heart, your mighty acts, your gl- the glorious splendor of your majesty, wonderful works, awesome works, great deeds, abundant goodness, your righteousness. I'll sing to you every day, forever and ever. This praise will go from generation to generation. Get a sense of David's heart and the magnitude of the greatness of our God. And as we continue in this passage, now hold this greatness of God in your mind as we juxtapose that with his immense condescension. These verses will only look as great as they will if you can simultaneously hold the greatness of God that we've been talking about in mind. It's difficult for your mind. Like I said, God's greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. But try. This same great God, the one that speaks and creates, the one who is great in our Savior, the one who is great in knowledge, is the Lord who is gracious and compassionate. Verse 8. Slow to anger and rich in love. Gracious and compassionate. Can someone so immense and great be compassionate? But yet, what do we hear in Psalm 103? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a gracious and compassionate God we have. Isn't that greatness just elevated when you, when you combine that with his compassion 
and his graciousness. Now generally, in the world of humans, the more elevated humans get, not in all cases, but in many cases, the less gracious they become. The less less patient they become. Usually they've got to their elevated status by strength, by wealth, by influence, by intellect, or hard and hard work which is ever elevated to them that, to that place. Would there not be a case for God not to be gracious? With increased greatness comes the requirement for immediate obedience, isn't there? When a parent tells their child to obey something, it means something. But when they say that in front of the grandparents, it means something even more, right? To some degree. When your boss tells you to do something, it means something. But when the CEO tells you to do something, you do it. Occasionally, I work in the conceptual design department. And occasionally, we get requests. Some requests are from some guy who just had a great idea. What about if we designed an aircraft like this? But occasionally, you get an idea and this. You know, there's this kind of understanding. This idea came directly from the top. So you work on it now. I don't care what you're doing. Drop everything. (laughs) Elevated greatness demands immediacy of obedience. And would there not be a case for God not to be gracious, given how great he is? Isn't there one who would be justified in swift anger, the Lord, when he commands what is right and what is wrong and we disobey Yet with all of his greatness, he's gracious and compassionate. You see sometimes on these, some of these reality shows, the rich and the powerful that seem justified in their explosions of anger when maybe they don't get what they want at a restaurant. How much greater is our God? And yet he's slow to anger. And one place which really struck me as I was studying this passage and realizing how slow our God is to anger is sometimes when you're in pain, you feel justified to be a little bit um, shirty, as they say. I remember when uh, um, I was getting ready for my back surgery, and me and my wife had a little bit of disagreement in the hospital, and I felt so justified because I was the one in pain, right? (laughs) Yet what do we see in our Savior, in the pain on the cross? Yet he didn't yield to his anger, when he was reviled and beaten and scorned and jeered at, whilst he was in pain. He's rich in love, abounding in love. But because of his great love for us, Ephesians chapter 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Amen. Verse number 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is good to all. He has a benevolent character. One place in scripture it says he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Every breath, every bit of life there is on this planet is contingent on God's grace. Each person you see as you walk out that building, you pick up a bus, the bus driver, the people sitting next to you on the bus, all of their lives and existence is contingent on the grace of God. Common grace which is extended to all not just his covenant people. How great we are, how gracious, how grateful we are that God shows his graciousness and his compassion on all he has made. And how much more to us who have been called by his grace. We see that in the Old Testament where people from outside the covenant community were enabled to join whether they were from the, uh, the people of Israel or not. And we, 
as the New Testament describes it, we who were not a people are now also included in God's people because of his grace. Isn't God's greatness just magnified so much more because he's compassionate and kind and rich in love? Princess Diana used to be called the people's princess. And there was a reason for this because notwithstanding her greatness, she was part of the royal family, there were pictures of her going to war zones, carrying children, caring for people. Now, with all of the rest of the stuff in her life, let's put that on one side. But still, the, the, the magnitude of her greatness as a royal was elevated even more by the fact that she was compassionate and loving and kind. I mean, I, I, I vaguely remember, you know, like uh, pictures from when I was a child of her going into war zones. Obviously, she had the secret service around her and things like that. But how much more is the greatness of our God elevated by his great compassion for us and his graciousness? And because of that, we can go to verse number 10. All your works will praise you, O Lord. Your faithful people will extol you. God's kingship will eventually be universally acknowledged. Just imagine that, a kingdom where the subjects fully rejoice. I don't know if you find in any society with hierarchy, it's always for the people at the bottom to find fault with the people at the top. You don't know how many, you don't know all the great ideas we have in our little department at work of how the CEO could do his job better. You, know. you don't know how many 300 million people there are in the US that could think of how Trump could do his job better. right? You don't know how all the people in Canada have all the right suggestions for Trudeau just to do his job better. Why is he releasing a playlist of his Spotify greatest hits? Why is he wasting time on that? Why doesn't he do things like that? Why doesn't he do other things? Yeah, all of God's works will praise him. There is no stain on God's character. There is no mistake that he's made. There is no miscalculation that he's made. When we, see the great, when we see the breath and all of the things that God has done, all we'll be able to say is, Great are you, Lord. You did it perfectly. You did it just right. I can't find one way that I would have adjusted your plan to make it better. It's hard to think now than when, when we go through difficult times and periods, but there's a coming a time. Hallelujah. When we won't have to say that, we will look at God's work in our lives and say, Lord, you did it just right. I was going through such a difficult time, but I praise you that you did it that way. Verse number 11. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Here we see the trajectory that the proclamation is supposed to take. It's supposed to bring fame to God's greatness. The glorious splendor of God's kingly dominion. So I would encourage you, learn to speak about the greatness of God's kingdom. You who are older, encourage the younger people. Let us learn to speak about the Lord outside of the churchy times at church, when you're getting a coat and things like that. Let us learn to speak about the Lord. Let our tongues be loose to talk about his greatness and not be embarrassed about it. Verse number 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. We get an echo of Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledging the greatness of God 
when he looked over his kingdom and said, it is by my strength and by my might the kingdom is so great. And God spoke from heaven and cast him down, gave him a fit of madness, and he left, his, uh, left the throne room and he grazed in the fields like the animals. And then finally, when he was brought back to his, sem- uh, his senses, he returned humble through his throne. When this period was over here with his own words, perhaps at this point the greatest king on earth, When this period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven. My reason was restored to me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised and glorified the one who lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom endures through all generations. All who live on earth are counted as nothing. He does as he wills with the powers of heaven and with those who live on the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? What a promise we have that this great God of ours, his kingdom is everlasting. You compare that to the earthly kingdoms that come and go. Even the greatest civilizations may be lasting a thousand years. But yet even those pale in their longevity compared to the kingdom of our God. His dominion endures through all generations. Here we are thousands of years later as a result of God's promise to Eve to crush the head of the serpent. And we are here praising our God as a result of that promise. God keeps his people and his church. And as troubled as history has been, God rules and he reigns. God is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Verse In, in uh, Psalm chapter 89 it says, Faithfulness is his very character. In our lives, he's true to his word. There are centuries, I would just like you to think, another thought that comes to my mind from time to time, there are centuries of God's faithfulness represented simply in this building. How amazing is that? There is a reason, I think, that Great Is Thy Faithfulness is so popular. Such an incredible hymn that it just gets better the longer you live, isn't it? Because you just see more and more and more of God's faithfulness. What a comfort to those who are in hardship and trouble. God is faithful. God is faithful to his promise, his promise to Eve, his covenant with Noah, his covenant with Abraham and with David. See his faithfulness and be reminded of his promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Cast your cares on me. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. The Lord upholds all who fall down and lifts up all who are bowed down. Be comforted, God's people, those of you who are going through difficult times. Both turn your eyes to his greatness, but realize that in his greatness he's there, present beside you. The Lord upholds those who fall down and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord is in proximity to the people who are falling down. He's not up there in the throne room, away from the riffraff. The Lord who holds, what a great God we have who can hold such exalted majesty and close tender care together. It's almost with these verses, you know, he upholds those who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. I remember just before I had the surgery on my back, finding it hard to walk, get out of bed, and my wife literally had to put her arm under my shoulder and lift me out of bed and lift me into the shower and things like that. Amazing. God of such greatness that he would be there to attend to our weakness. 
Amazing. God doesn't just, I was reading a book recently, God doesn't magic people out of their challenges, does he? But he's present with them. He walks beside us. He's there beside us while we are stumbling and falling and while we are bowed down. Let us not only look with awe on God's greatness, but in reliance on him, knowing that we only survive by the upholding presence of the Lord. Another lesson is taught here, John Calvin says, none will be disappointed who seeks comfort from God in his affliction. The eyes of all look to you, verse 15, and you give them food in their proper time. God is our provider. It is both his greatness to see our need and provide for our need. Verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Not only does God see and he provides, God has the means to provide. Isn't there a psalm that says something like, the cattle on a thousand hen belong to the Lord? Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. What might and strength, who can restrain his hand? And yet what we see on earth is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yet with our Lord, there is an untainted record of perfection. The Lord is righteous in all that he does. He is faithful in all that he does. There is the hymn that I read you earlier, which talks about God's awesome purity. Actually, the original word is God's awful purity. How full of awe is God's moral purity? God's righteousness makes is, is, it's as if it's transparent to see through to this brightness of God's moral perfection. Moral spotlessness. Our king in, indeed can be relied on because he's faithful in all that he does. How often our circumstances cause us to doubt God's goodness, doubt his faithfulness to his promises. Yet God's self-revelation is here is God is faithful in all he does. Even though I walk through the... Just be comforted when you hear this promise. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. How about Psalm 91? Another promise. He's faithful in all he does. He will cover you with his wings. You will be safe in his care. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. Verse 18, another precious verse. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Again, the comfort, the greatness of our God, and yet his proximity. Isn't this one of our, at least it is for me, one of our most recurrent prayers when we're going through difficulty? Lord, please be with us. Lord, please be with me. Remind me again of your presence. Lord, if those words, Lord, be with us. Lord, be with me. Have you been in truth calling on him? Then be assured, based on this scripture, the Lord is near you. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries and he saves them. Just a short comment here. Isn't this what we have heard through the entire study of the book of Exodus? God heard the cries of his people Israel and he saved them. Many of us are here because we have cried out for mercy. Having come under the preaching of the gospel and God has saved us. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who, who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. That moral purity, what a comfort that God will set things right one day. What a great comfort. It's no comfort of a God that sweeps evil and wickedness under the carpet. It's no, 
And the greatness of this verse is not only that God watches over those who he loves, he's able to care and provide and his greatness and his might and his power is for us, those who he loves. And in closing, our last verse, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. What a fitting response. My mouth, David says, as it has been through a multitude of psalms, will speak the praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his name forever and ever. My mouth has been, and his wish is almost as if he could have said, if I had a thousand tongues, I would sing the praises of my God. And this is not just wishful thinking, wishing of what he will do one day. You've seen the evidence of this in his life. And here, as we see, he's crafted this psalm around the alphabet using the extent of language to glorify our God where he uses about one-third of the psalm to point us to the greatness of our God and about two-thirds of this psalm to reassure and comfort us that this God who is so great is for us. What a promise. And finally, we have the promise that is to come. God's God's praise shall sound forth in perpetuity. What else would be fitting for a God whose greatness is unfathomable and unsearchable? We sing a song, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's not just that we have no less time, we've got no less reasons. In fact, we'll have more reasons to sing about his greatness. There'll be greater depths that we'll want to sing about and compose about and write acrostic poems about. There's a nice little bit which I'm going to end with in the book at the, um, at the end of the Narnia series. Narnia, which is an, uh, which in a large part is an allegory of the Christian faith. It talks about the time to come. So hear this. As he spoke, this is the lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure. He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after this were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of the, of the story. And we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever. And this is the bit in which every chapter is better than the one before. Blows our mind to think about the depth and the breadth and the height of the greatness of our God. Inexhaustible greatness, almost unsettling when you think about it. So I thought, how could I conclude finally? I thought I would just read the words of scripture. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Let us pray together. Lord, it has been wonderful to take some time to contemplate your goodness and your grace. And yet your grace, which is combined with proximity, care, love, graciousness and compassion. Touch our hearts, we pray, Lord, that we would exercise greater faith towards you, that our hearts would be encouraged to obedience that those who are faltering, falling down, would call on you in truth 
and that you would be near them, bolstering them and upholding them by your powerful hand. Fill us, Lord, with awe at your unfathomable and unsearchable depth of your greatness. We pray that you would do this for Christ's sake. Amen.